0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Radio Free HPC. This is where we talk about supercomputing, high-performance computing, and other technology topics. I'm Dan Olds, joined as always by my co-host Henry Newman from Seagate Government Solutions and Shaheen Khan from X. Now let's get to the show.
1: Welcome everybody back to yet another, as Dan would say, scintillating episode of Radio Free HPC. We're delighted to have you. And as you can tell again, with this fine voice that you're hearing, Dan is not here again, except that this time we managed to get an upgrade. So we want to welcome new guest, Glenn Hindley is joining us. Glenn.
0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here.
1: And we have Henry S. Newman, also as Dan would say. Henry, how are you?
2: I'm wonderful. I'm glad Glenn could make it.
1: Glenn, I know you are world famous, but maybe to the half a dozen listeners that we have, you can give it a little bit of your background and what makes it all exciting these days. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: I like to keep things logical, so I'll start in chronological order. My background, I was programming AI systems back in the 80s. During the 90s, I actually was a civilian employee at the Naval Research Lab, and we did a lot of research in high-performance computing. We ran a, a connection machine, CM5, a parallel SGI system, We were involved with the DOD's HPC program, so I got involved with the major shared resource centers and a a variety of other systems there. After leaving civil service, I moved over to the commercial world and got into the storage market, and I've been heavily involved in high-performance and high-velocity storage environments for the last 20 years or so. Most recently, I'm with Keeper Technology, we do data storage and data management systems. We have a product that is based on open source. We use the open source Ceph project for software defined storage. Actually, very excited that open source has finally made it into the storage realm. It's been great on the processing and networking for years. It really has matured and is being widely adopted in the storage realm as well now. That's right. And so that's what Keeper does. That's where I've been and that's what I've been doing.
1: That's excellent. And I'm glad that you pick easy stuff to do. I think you guys both share that trait. So the topic today is hot chips. As you know, there's an annual conference that is held somewhere in Silicon Valley, mostly in Stanford. This one was at the Stanford campus. I had the privilege of attending. It has become a really big conference. It used to be just way smaller. This one was easily over five, six hundred people. It was a big auditorium with two balconies and they were all packed. But there's a lot to really cover there, so without further ado, what we're going to do is to go quickly over the agenda that they had, and then maybe focus on a few talks that we can discuss. Sound okay? Sounds,
2: great. Sounds good. All right. I'm always interested in hot chips.
1: So they had a day of tutorials that was focused on cloud. Uh, there was a c- talk by AWS with their Nitro project, a talk by Microsoft and how they're doing acceleration in Azure and with FPGAs and ASICs. Google had a talk about their tensor processing units, version three in Google Cloud. And the afternoon was pretty much all Risk Five, quite interesting.
2: And did they talk about verification tools? Because I think that's one of the big deals with Risk 5 They're coming fast and strong and
1: have a good story to tell, albeit not without the usual complexities that we should point out. Keynote speakers were Dr. Lisa Su, who's the CEO of AMD and the current rock star of the chip world after their seven nanometer ROAM that we covered a couple of episodes ago. What was interesting about her talk was a focus on high-performance computing. I think she's using high-performance computing in its English meaning, not just the market segment. But it is interesting that with AMD using high-performance computing and NVIDIA using supercomputing, maybe we are finally seeing the mainstreaming of HPC. We've selected a few talks to focus on. The first one is from Dr. Wong at TSMC. He had a slide that got distributed widely on social media. It said Moore's law is well and alive, and his verbiage was that it's not even sick. And of course the rebuttal to that was Moore's law in quotations is alive and well because it's all about density, but density is not translating to megahertz and gigahertz anymore. So what do you guys think about that, having read? So
0: I think that the general acceptance of Moore's Law is about performance anymore. Even though the strict definition may be one thing, when people think of Moore's Law, they generally think of performance. And so you can certainly say, according to density, Moore's Law is alive. But if it doesn't translate to performance and where the rubber meets the road, then people are going to start questioning it.
1: Dr. Sue in her talk was talking about Moore's law slowing down, that we went from 17 nanometers to 14 nanometers way faster than we're going from 10 nanometers to 7.
2: Well, being strict in my definitions, Moore's law isn't about performance. If you see what Dr. Moore had originally said, I guess my comment is people can change the law as they go on to meet whatever requirements they want. But I think if you use what Glenn was saying and, and where we're going, is application-specific cores and application-specific processing with the advent of FPGAs and other accelerator processors around the system. And if you're looking at it from a pure performance point of view, I think the future in some ways, at least for the next five or 10 years, is pretty bright because I think we're going to be able to distribute applications to go lots faster based on their requirements for floating point or integer or 16-bit or 32-bit. And I think that's coming pretty quickly.
1: The other thing he mentioned that was interesting was the mega trends that drive the technology. We've gone from transistor radio being the real killer app for chips to mini computers to the PC and internet and then to mobile technology with 3G, 4G. And now we're getting to a point where it's AI and 5G driving everything. And that is something that is quite visible. Even if what you're doing is not AI-related, you look for ways to make it AI-related because that's just the party you want to crash. But it does have different requirements. So 5G has its own requirements. You talked about it once, uh Henry, about power consumption. And what he pointed out with AI was data movement and data size that now suddenly the amount of memory and the amount of memory movement that you need surpasses what you need in CPUs. And that means a bigger focus on interconnect, on memory density and speed, and that is reflecting what people are doing.
0: Hey, I'm curious, and this is more of a question, Shaheen. You talked about the migration of the driver from going through mobile into AI. As I look at these things, I, I, see, I see the driver being more based on money and count, you know, how many devices are out there. There's certainly more mobile devices than PCs and more PCs than mini computers. When you get to that fifth phase, is the driver really the quantity? Now that we're talking about Internet of Things and we have intelligent refrigerators and intelligent microwaves, which, quite frankly, I don't like my intelligent refrigerator. That drives me crazy. But did they talk about, at Hot Chips, the fact... Just the sheer quantities of chips being in everything nowadays, and how much is that driving technology? I
1: think what he's talking about in his slide is the leading edge. Okay. That if you want to really focus on the leading edge applications, then you need the leading edge fabrication technology. And as the cost comes down, they can go towards where the real volume is. So when you look at IoT, and of course there's a lot of work into making it smaller and faster but if you are really looking for parts that are 2 or 3 cents a piece then by necessity you're kind of limited to older technologies and that's just fine you don't really need it to run at 5 gigahertz where it also came out was the open source trend that risc-v and others have started at that end the idea of having flexible way of licensing technology and implementing it is favoring open source because it can Take out stuff you don't want.
2: You can add the stuff that you do. And that becomes the application-specific core. That's what I believe.
1: Domain-specific applications was everywhere at this show. Now, one of the things that this data movement implies, too, is that interconnect technologies are really important. And that leads us to one of the more exciting talks from a company called Cerebras. You probably have heard it by now. They are doing wafer-scale chip production. And wafer scale, of course, means that the entire wafer is just one single chip. The one that they talked about that they're running applications in the lab has 1.2 trillion transistors. This is really a whistle at this point, because
0: that's... Yeah, that just fascinates me. The, The scale of that, how massive that is, and trying to do something at that scale reliably, I really am curious how much redundancy they have built in. What percentage of that area... Are they assume is just going to be dead, and how do they deal with that?
2: Glenn, I'd add, how they're going to reroute around some bad areas to be able, because it's all interconnected, how are they going to connect <laughs> memory into something that big and, and move the data around into various registers?
1: Well, the memory is going to be right on the chip. They did talk about redundancy, about rerouting dynamically. There will be flaws here and there, and the only way around it is to architect around it. So they've got 400,000 AI-optimized cores on this thing, and 18 gigabytes of on-chip memory. So this really is a giant thing. They talked about 9 petabytes per second of memory bandwidth, and this is all with a 16-nanometer process. So you could argue that they could double it again in not-too-distant future. The challenges that they talked about was cross-die connectivity because the wafers are usually built in tiles, each tile being a chip, and that edge acts as a barrier. So they worked specially with TSMC to put wires between those tiles and have a 2D mesh that serves as a fabric at the tile level. They talked about yield and how that leads to the redundancy and dynamic fault tolerance that we talked about. Turns out that thermal expansion is a really big problem as the chips get larger because when you plug it in, the chip expands at a different rate than the board that it connects to and the substrate that it connects to. And if you're not careful, the chip that big can just crack. Can't wait to hear like war stories from these guys because they must have solved some really cool problems in the meantime. It is
0: interesting how these challenges, when you talk about yield, for example, traditionally Yield meant, how many of these individual chips do I just throw away? Right. Whereas now, they can't afford to throw away one of these, you know? (laughs) So yield is a very different meaning, I would think, nowadays. truly is, yeah.
1: The analogy I had was large screen TVs and what the cost differential is. If you go for an 85-inch TV compared to a 32-inch. Well, I'll
2: give you an example. I was just looking at it today. 75-inch TV, you know, $1,400. 95-inch TV, $69,000 at Best Buy. I mean, that's that's crazy. Right.
1: So you're not going to build many and you're not going to buy many, right?
2: Well, I'm not buying the 95-inch for sure.
1: (laughs) I don't think I have the wall space.
2: Yeah, but you're talking way past
0: the knee of the curve. I mean, you went from 74 to 95, but you can get an 85-inch TV for $6,000.
2: Correct. That's correct and about $2,400 for 8K. So if you do 8K, you know, there's a 4X difference for the 10 inches and then a yeah. <laughs> uh, 10X difference for the the next 10 inches.
1: I have to say I'm so impressed that you guys have the pulse of the market when it comes to HDTV pricing. I'm building
2: a new house, Shaheen. I'm starting to look at these things, man. Are you going
0: to have a whole wall that's a
2: TV? No, I can't afford that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: not at $69,000.
2: No no sir.
1: <laughs> this also reminds me of that old joke that if you have one you're a customer, if you have two you're a reseller. <laughs> 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 All right, so the other good talk and new stuff was from a company called UpMem. U P M E M. It's a French company that is doing what they call the true processing in memory accelerator. Now, processing in memory, I mean, I mean none of these topics are new. Like wafer scale is just the logical conclusion of thermal conduction module that IBM did in the mainframes back in like the 70s and 80s. So it's just kind of continuation of that, but some ideas are now viable and there's a market condition for them. So a lot of it is really timing and the readiness of the rest of the ecosystem. Uh, but they're talking about processor in memory. Basically you just buy DIMMs from them. And those DIMMs have processors in them.
2: Yeah, Gene, you and I talked a little bit in the pre-call. This stuff has been tried since, I believe, I think the first PIM machine that I'm aware of, that I worked on, 86, uh, on a Cray-2. Lots of papers written about it. And then I believe Micron did some stuff. I just don't ever see this happening because, one, programming models, two, applications that can't take advantage of it, you're wasting the hardware. Now, if we do get to true application-specific processing, then I'll give it a maybe, but the volume here for pattern matching and things like that is just not big enough in my mind.
1: Well, you got to look at what they're doing because they have worked with what they call many, many applications.
2: So have everybody else has been doing this stuff, Shaheen?
1: But they have numbers to show and they're getting anywhere from... So
2: did everybody else, man. I don't know
1: if they did. have been there. No, I don't know if they, they did. They did. I don't know.
2: They did. You want to uh, put 20 bucks. Okay.
1: <laughs> but the other thing that I see as difference is that programming model, that you don't have to go do data flow programming or rewrite the code from scratch, that they have an application development model that seems to make it quite interesting. And so I, I tell you, this is interesting and
0: something to watch.
2: All right. We'll see, Gene. I'll still, I'll, I'm still... I'll show you the papers. All right.
1: Well, you know, they got they got papers too, yeah.
0: If there's 20 bucks on the line, I'll definitely watch.
2: Usually
1: it's Dan and Henry who make these bets. And,
0: <laughs> and it leads.
1: Well, Dan's not here. That's true. Yes. Yeah, so, so I have to take the bait. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there we go.
1: <laughs> All right. The other talk that was really new, and then maybe we can do another one and wrap after that, is uh, from a company. Uh, well, it's called Gentide. I don't know whether that's the name of a company or that's the name of the chip but the talk was given by the CEO of a company called Catafract Microelectronics, which is a startup from Tsinghua University in China. His name is Ao Luo. Very good talk. This one is about security, and security applied to actual existing CPUs. So their motivation is design a CPU chip that supports users to verify the behavior of the chip. So they have a trace for CPU system behavior, They check if the behavior matches expectation and they trace and check is done at runtime in real time. They call it dynamic security check. They showed how malware and malpractice can insert itself at every stage of the chip development and how it is so difficult to trust what you get. This is what we have talked about with supply chain security. So essentially what they're doing is behavioral analytics and what I call wide packet inspection because you look at a whole bunch of transactions and you look at the behavior of the chip and you raise a flag. So they basically encapsulate a Xeon core inside their Gentide CPU and they just wrap it with all sorts of tracing and monitoring logic.
2: Interesting. We'll see. uh, What's the performance impact?
1: Don't know. Good question.
2: Looks to me, given the block diagram you show, it could be pretty ugly.
1: Well, it is all hardware too. So that's probably one reason they are doing it in hardware.
2: Yeah, but even with an AI engine and hardware, you still got the learning and the behavior, and it's still going to be... I'm curious as to what the performance would be.
1: But I thought we can single out those three so far as indications of stuff that is new. Wafer scale, processor memory, and behavioral analytics security applied to actual CPU. There's one more that I want to highlight, and this one was from Tesla. So Tesla, as has been rumored and has been read, they're building their own AI chip for what they call a full self-driving computer, FSD. So the full self-driving computer has redundancy and it is built just to their specifications, nothing else. And that way they said they can cut on power requirement. Uh, they want to stay below 100 watts for the whole thing. So the chip is less than 40 watts per chip, which they think is best in class power efficiency high utilization, and they use GPUs and CPUs in the back end for the learning. This is really in the car for inference in real time, connected to all the sensors that they have and they're going to have. And it's really just, to me, an indication that these guys have the wherewithal and the volume to go do their own thing.
2: Well, and this goes back to my application-specific processing. You don't have a general-purpose processor for each sensor type. And if you can build one chip that can manage every single sensor in an application, you know, sensor-specific core, you can save a lot of power. And if you've got an electric car, saving power is a big deal. That's mileage. So I hear a noise now in the background. This is the Henry S. Newman feel-good, what do we call the segment? The uplifting segment of the week. And the uplifting segment is everybody, turn off your Bluetooth. Because there's a new man-in-the-middle attack for Bluetooth that can basically allow any hacker pretty easy access down to 8-bit encryption to get into your Bluetooth system. I saw it earlier in the week and it's really come out in the last couple of days that a lot of people or you know, even major news organizations, CNN, NBC are putting this, but
1: this is a bad one. This is really goes to the fundamental way that Bluetooth is implemented.
2: And I would question whether it's Bluetooth only. This is the way when negotiating connections between devices. I don't know how near field communication works for phones. I'm wondering if it's something similar but this is about connection negotiation and having a man in the middle and when it's trying to negotiate the encryption between the two devices, somebody gets in the middle and says "Oh, I don't have that level of encryption I have this one and then gets in the middle and sets up the encryption in such a way that it's pretty easy to break into and you can hear everything. So. This is a fundamental issue with uh, negotiating communications for Bluetooth devices, and it'd be interesting to see how long it takes to get fixed, how they fix it, and you know some of the other things like near field communication, what it is. So that's my uplifting segment of the week. It's pretty friggin' scary.
0: I think Henry and I have different definitions of uplifting. That is very scary. <laughs> and what's what's interesting to me on this one is that. It is an attack on the specification itself. And so that every implementation that adheres to this specification is vulnerable to this. And this,
2: therefore, therefore, every implementation, because you have to adhere
1: to the specification, <laughs> Glenn. You're talking about the knob vulnerability, right? K-N-O-B?
2: Correct. Yeah, I think that's what's called.
1: As many of you know, I work with an IoT company, Faro. And of course, a lot of that business is resting on Bluetooth, and they are not affected because they have implemented the equivalent of VPN for Bluetooth. And that means the security is done at a level outside of Bluetooth, and then what happens inside Bluetooth is already encapsulated. So it is important that there are ways of avoiding these things if you do the traditional VPN and double tunneling
0: and things like that.
1: So I think they should do a press release.
0: Yeah, that, that's an opportunity. It sounds like they should. Yep. Anyhow.
1: This show is just becoming a series of segments, which is great. And this is our Catches of the Week. Maybe, Glenn, if you have one, you
0: can go first. Sure, I'd happy to start. Uh, I think it's more of a minnow rather than a large, cat. <laughs> but a a tiny linux computer it's from Vocor and it is one inch by one inch, so one inch square Linux computer capable of doing wi fi and network connections, so it can be a router, it can play games, you can configure it to a number of things, you can get the specs, the boards, everything you want directly for very inexpensive for 20 or 40 dollars you can get a complete linux computer that you can go and play with and it's very tiny one inch by one inch.
1: wow so is this like a raspberry pi one
0: it's one inch by one inch by
2: one inch or is it flat so
0: there's one board that holds the processing and a second board with auxiliary components on it so when you put it together it's basically a cube slightly flatter than a cube but the, the board itself is one inch by one inch. But the whole thing comes up to about a cube.
2: Very cute. Wow. I've got a catch. Again, trying to be uplifting like I always am on this show. <laughs> there was a massive attack at a grocery chain called Hy-Vee, where pretty much they got all your credit card information. So if you shopped at Hy-Vee, cancel your card. Doesn't everybody have
1: all the data by now?
2: <laughs> That's why everyone should have their credit locked at all three credit bureaus.
1: All right, so I'm going to do a catch, and this one is going to be a plug for something that I'm doing. Go on meetup.com and look for Enterprise IoT. So I formed a group called Enterprise IoT. The idea is to try to understand what it is and what the challenges are and to try to have some good insights. Security is a part of it. The business case is part of it. Connectivity, data, device, cloud, mobile. AI, all of the above. I think that's where a lot of trends come together to build something really complicated and it felt like a good thing to do. So go check it out, enterpriseIoT at meetup.com.
2: And on that note, thank you for listening to another edition of Radio Free HPC. We'll see you next week, hopefully without Dan again.
1: (laughs) Actually, we should say that Dan is on his way to Australia for a conference, so we wish him happy travels. And we look forward to having you back.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Radio Free HPC. And as a quick note, the views and opinions of Henry Newman are his and do not reflect any policy or position of Seagate Government Solutions or Seagate Technology. Thank you for listening.